1: So welcome to today's edition of the Stockhead Wildcatter podcast. I'm Peter Strachan and today we are delighted to have the Managing Director of Carnarvon Petroleum, Adrian Cook, with us. Welcome, Adrian.
0: Thanks, Peter. It's good to uh, have this opportunity with you.
1: Been a, a quite a busy couple of years for you, uh, Adrian, although I get the impression that Carnarvon's a bit, been a bit like a duck paddling on a pond. It uh, looks all very calm on top, but there's been a lot of activity underneath. And I think we'll go to that in a minute, but you're now sitting on a company with a market capitalization of 650 odd million. dollars, And it's been a bit of a wild ride in the last two years, but you've come to this industry via circuitous routes and you're not a, an earth scientist, but a financial and accounting background person. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was that drew you into the industry and how you got to be at uh, Carnarvon.
0: No, you're, you're exactly right that um, you know, I've commenced through the uh, chartered accounting uh, route with Deloitte and Ernst & Young. Uh, I spent uh, a lot of years with Rio Tinto uh, in the coal industry on the East Coast before returning back to Perth where I was working with uh, the engineering group called Clough um, and that's really where the, the oil bug bit in the sense that I um, I was the CFO for the oil and gas business, constructing oil and gas fields around the world. Uh, I moved into the upstream small cap space, um, which really suited sort of my personality type and could draw on a whole wide raft of experiences and training that I'd had to that point in time. Um, So through Arc Energy and then Buru, before joining Carnarvon, um, nearly 10 years ago now.
1: Yes, and what do you think it was that you gained from that period um, in small-cap companies before you came uh, to build Carnarvon?
0: Uh, so from, for me, my Rio Tinto days um, taught me that uh, if you're in a commodity business, you you want resources that are in your lowest-cost quartile. And I think that would be the one single biggest takeaway for me. Uh, and then overlaying that, the commercial discipline I've learned through my Formal training uh, in finance and investment, uh, together with that, uh, that construction and, and uh, chartered accounting space. So, so bringing kind of commercial finance together with understanding the need to build value. Um, but also in doing that, yeah, you, know, you want something that retains this, this low cost quartile commodity resource so that, um, you know, when oil prices are lower or gas prices are lower, you remain
1: insulated um, to the downside and exposed to uh, to upside. Um, Adrian, I think that's an excellent response. And it brings me to one of my uh, big pluses, I think. Um, you and I both worked at Rio Tinto in the early days. And I think uh, what I've found in analysing companies over the last 20 or 30 years is that often in the resource sector, the geologists hold on to the reins far too long, and re- you need to get a mining engineer in there, or you need to get a, a someone with a finance background in there, whilst keeping very strong, you know, earth sciences people around you. You need to have someone in there who understands a little bit about the um, the, the strategic way forward for companies, and a lot of times geologists fall in love with the rocks, and they don't really see that it's not all that commercial uh, over the long term. So, uh, I think. Uh, what you've said really reinforces my view about what it takes to be a successful uh, company in the resource space and move out from being a 20 or 30 million dollar company into a sort of billion dollar company so um, Carnarvon uh, after you arrived it moved fairly swiftly to monetize what had been a fairly successful oil exploration and development project in uh, Thailand and you sold that in late 2014 at what was really uh, record prices, you were top of the cycle and then you you uh, took that money and then carefully invested it over the 2015, 2016 by acquiring a string, a portfolio of uh, permits off Australia's west coast and into the Timor Sea. So can you tell us a bit about how that process went ahead? I think in, in opening that answer, I'll tap
0: into where you finished uh, a point earlier. Uh, you know, I bring a certain uh, series of skills and disciplines, um, but, but you did right to, to be successful, um, the board and the management team need a broad set of skills and, and um, you know, we need to use the strengths of, of everybody in the business as effectively as we possibly can. Yeah, like, like a, a sporting team of any kind. So our earth science people have, you know, a strong say in what we're doing. Yeah, our reservoir engineering team and the economics uh, guys are similarly. Um, and I think we've done well by, by by managing our board and managing our management team, where everybody's say, is important and listened to and judged uh, and, uh, in the overall decision we make. When I came in um, to Carnarvon, my feeling was that um, we had an eclectic portfolio of assets, but I didn't feel like we had a strategic focus or, you know, to take a textbook, a a strategic competitive advantage of any particular type. Um, You know, we were looking at new projects and we were, you know, the 30th group to look at it, and um, so we're not the first to anything um, and for, for a raft of different reasons, we decided that um, the Northwest Shelf was somewhere we thought that we could build that competitive advantage. Um, you know, you could get hold of free data. We could focus on building a database um, our knowledge and experience. Um, there was, uh, because of the Australian system, there were permits that would regularly came, come up, so it would give us plentiful opportunity to let the geologists and geoscientists you know, work through the rocks and, um, we know with particularly oil prices they run in cycles. So my skill set could, could come to the fore in trying to sell high and buy cheap, um, which is what we tried to do with exiting Thailand and then coming into a raft of projects at the bottom of the oil cycle um, ahead of the uh, the increase in oil work that's happened in the last couple of years. Um, and overall, um, looking to keep uh, an, an an active uh, portfolio. We, you know, we didn't want to. We didn't want to accumulate and sit passively on projects. Um, you know, we wanted to actually test our thesis, uh, and to do that, we needed to be uh, drilling drilling wells.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, you were uh, you worked up these uh, projects and you worked up the um, the assets there, and then uh, you went out looking for partners to shoot seismic or, or drill wells, as the case may be.
0: Yeah, very much our model is um, you know, working Working the rocks, the, being technically competent on the geoscience. Um, what we are looking for in this model is to then attract, once we've advanced the projects to a certain point, uh, major companies to come and join us. Um, and in those major companies, they have the people, the expertise and the capacity to drill the wells on success, to appraise them, to then construct and build the the fields and ultimately produce them. And, um, you know, we're more than happy like we are with Dorado to sit there as the junior partner um, with Santos and be uh, supportive to the extent that our uh, skills and services uh, allow. But knowing that our our partner really has very, very strong capability and, um, again, just to revert back to why we focus on the Northwest Shelf, That is one element um, of the decision-making process where there are a host of of high-quality potential partners that uh, that operate on the Northwest Shelf um, that uh, we would be happy to to partner with. Um, And I think uh, we have something like 10 or 11 projects now in the business. Um, Certainly the Dorado Project's getting the headlines at the moment for valid reasons, but... um, that we continue to work on those other projects with the view that um, we hope that some of them will progress in the future, like uh, like Dorado has done for us today. Yeah,
1: and I think it's uh, kudos to Carnarvon as well that the company and its technical people identified these areas. And I know by speaking to very senior exploration people from other major companies who operate in that area that the common wisdom was that oh you know this the central part of the northwest shelf where the liquefied natural gas projects are that was the sweet spot and as you get out to the margins of the basin of course the reservoirs deteriorate you get a lot of volcanics it'll never work um and so on and so forth and uh People who had, had actually held those permits before had basically, you know, had been in-house wisdom, I guess, and no one had actually ever tested with a drill bit and um, or they might have tested it once and twice and just walked away. So it was a great opportunity and great for new thinking to come in, which is, I think, what Carnarvon prides itself on. Exactly. Um, the projects
0: that we have in the portfolio, Uh, all follow a reasonably common thematic now, um, and and that is um, we're looking for um, projects that have hydrocarbons either within the permits or very close by, uh, where there is um, a status quo within the industry that that puts a negative proposition uh, or, or perspective to the project, where we can put our team and our database uh, and ideally something new in the industry technology-wise to work. Um, Not everything is going to sort of come out positive, um, but if I've done my job well and we're able to secure those projects at a low holding cost, what doesn't work, we can release back into the government sphere. What does work, we can then take forward and look to test with the drill bit. Um, And and as you and I know very well, you know, when we drill exploration wells, not everything's going to work. Um, But uh, on balance, we would hope that, um, you know, we have a pretty good success rate. And if we're drilling enough wells, uh, we should have a a strong value proposition coming out of uh, the technical work, the commercial work, uh, the size resources that we're targeting, um, which, as I said, we've seen with Dorado today
1: yeah and sometimes you find oil when you 're looking for gas, so that was the case with Phoenix and then you moved on to rock, which um, you flow tested at a very strong flow rate, which sort of proved um, put the doubters in their place and then uh, Dorado it 's three wells into dorado and you 've had uh, flow tests of over eleven thousand barrels of oil a day with twenty one million cubic feet a day of gas associated and the the word on the street is that uh, with a proper completion of a uh, production well, you should be able to get something in the order of thirty thousand barrels of oil equivalent a day out of a uh, out of a production well. There is that your current thinking.
0: Mm-hmm, it is, um, and I think Santos, uh, in their press release at the time, mentioned the same number. Um, yeah, look, I think uh, for Dorado um, specifically. Uh, I break the project up into sort of three simple segments. One one is find and appraise um, the resource. Um, And this year, with our program, um, we're through that phase. And I'm comfortable now with the sort of scale of resource and the flow test that we have. Uh, The next phase, in my mind, is around uh, how we're going to build it and what the cost of of building it's going to be. And uh, the third phase is then producing uh, the resource. if I come back to that second phase, um, you know, the flow data from the reservoir we announced from Dorado 3 in the Kalia were very, very strong. Seeing um, one of the highest flow tests on the Northwest shelf, given the constraints of the equipment we had. We now look to where the next um, uh, bottlenecks or constraints are around, um, around getting to ultimate production. So we now are comfortable. It's unlikely to be the reservoir. Um, the next two might be you know, how quickly we can re-inject the gas if that's the development route we go. And the third might be the size of the boat that we have and what its um, production flow rate capacity is going to be. And uh, as, as we said in our last press release on the flow results, they, they become this next phase, uh, and we'll be doing a lot of work on that in 2020, or particularly the Santos team, um, around the engineering for the development um, of the uh, the oil,
1: particularly in this project. Yeah. So, Adrian, having Santos there as a partner, um, I mean, Quadrant was already a very strong technical and uh, production partner, but Santos has other gas assets along the coast. There, would do you see any synergies between uh, the Santos assets and the ability to? Uh, produce that gas alongside the oil uh, sort of contemporaneously?
0: Looking time, um, one of the jobs for the finishing of this year and early next year is just to work out how we might look to develop the field and, and produce the oil and the gas. Um, yeah, there are a couple of scenarios. Um, one is where the oil, condensate and gas is all produced uh, together in a full-field development Um an alternative to that is we develop uh, the liquids initially, which is the oil and the condensate. We re-inject the gas. Um, and there's some attraction to doing uh, the second alternative in that um, by re-injecting the gas... provides it, support for the reservoir. Precisely. Um, enhance the recovery of the oil, um, and then you can come back later and produce the gas. Now, in that scenario, um, the pressure comes off a little bit in terms of working out where the markets are for the gas. Um, so that's another, uh, appealing factor for me. We give the, the gas market in WA a bit more time that we can get a sense for that. Um, to answer you, you, you the question though, in terms of the Santos infrastructure for gas, um, it's a reasonable way down the coast. Um, my intuition from my clough days is that there might be alternatives that are uh, preferable for development for that gas, uh, shorter routes to market, for example. Um, you know, Port Hedland's only 150 kilometres from this field, which uh, which is far sort of, uh, closer offshore pipeline laid than, than coming all the way down to say a Devil's Creek.
1: Yeah, my feeling would be as well that holding the gas back and continuing to strip the uh, liquids out for four or five years initially would probably generate a net present value as you'd probably get better value for that gas as a uh, top-up feed for LNG or whatever other um, opportunities that might come along. True. And I would add another uh, element to the answer is that um,
0: it gives us a little more time to continue exploring in this area. Uh, This year, we acquired new 3D seismic over... Uh, Dorado and the discovery of uh, rock and some near field prospects that look really, really attractive. So, you know, if we drill those and we find uh, more oil, fantastic. We've got the infrastructure then there. If we find more gas, I think it opens up our commercial optionality for uh, exporting the gas rather than bringing it just to a domestic uh, consumption um, environment. So, yeah, I think uh, more and more I, I, I like the early oil production, um, yeah, reinject the gas, enhance the recoveries of the liquids, give us some time to see where the gas markets are going, give us some time to drill some of these exploration targets that we like, upon refining them with the the new seismic, um, and uh, yeah, bringing that, that that whole value proposition together, and um, yeah, in. The way I think on value, I split my training up into you, know, you mentioned net present value and that's critically important um, but I also look at uh, gross free cash flow after tax unrisked, undiscounted to see what yeah you know, what the big prize could be and um you know I, I think we heard from Santos recently about the Barossa and, you know, one of the reasons for them being attracted to those style of assets is having longevity cash flow. Um, you know, as a CEO, there's real strategic merit in having a lot of years of steady, stable cash flow. So for me, when I'm thinking about the investment opportunities, I'm, I'm weighing both uh, free cash flow and I'm weighing in net present value.
1: Yeah, there was sort of definite synergies between the assets that... Um, Santos had and, and those that they purchased. Before we leave the Beto sub basin, just looking forward at your exploration uh, targets or wish list, uh, you did drill the rock south and that was a duster. Are you um, still focused on APIS and PAVO as your prime exploration targets in the basin or has there been some learning from the, the exploration work that you've done in the basin?
0: Yes. So, the- we drilled three wells this year, as you point out, uh, Dorado Dr- 2 and 3, the appraisal wells, and in between was Rock South, which uh, uh, we thought had a high chance of success and didn't work. Um, you know, We're still uh, trying to understand the reasons for the failure. Uh, I'm hoping that the new 3D seismic will give us some clarity around that. Um, one of the thematics is that there's a migration shadow between uh, uh, that, that's between Rock and Dorado that uh, prohibited the hydrocarbons entering the Rock South structure. Uh, I would say, um, you know, I think we've drilled nine wells out here. Um, eight of either been commercial technical successes, one duster that doesn't detract in any way from our view that we are unlocking a new basin on Northwest Shelf and we're learning all the time. Uh, I think Parbo and Apis look to remain very, very strong targets uh, for us to look at with our new seismic data. Uh, I would stress that between Parvo and Rock and Dorado are a number of other uh, prospects, and I'm pretty keen to see how they strengthen up on the new 3D seismic. So I think there's a lot of opportunity just within this reasonably confined space. Um, I'm really attracted to finding near-field tie-back resources because the cost, as you know, is just so low, Uh, and we can now work with either a gas outcome or an oil outcome. Um,
1: Yeah, there's no point in going 200 kilometres away when you can find something, you know, within 30 or 40 kilometres.
0: Right, and, um, you you know, those tie-back costs, I think, uh, you know, when they're very low cost, you know, we we, we opened the segment about uh, time at Rio Tinto, lowest cost quartile, you know, if you're down at the very, very lowest cost quartile, then, um, you know, that, that can provide some pretty staggering returns uh, on investment.
1: And uh, finally, Adrian, just to finish, we've had an interesting year in Timor-Leste as well. You've now got the Buffalo project uh, firmly ensconced in a... Uh, is uh, Timor's uh, PSC? Um, what's the the way forward there now that you finally got the all well, the ink is dry on the on the uh, contracts and the um, the uh, uh, agreement between the two nations? Mm. So we've been working just
0: qu- quietly in the background on, on this Buffalo project, um, where half remains in Australia, half moves to Timor Leste, and the initial focus area that we that we want to address now falls into Timor-Leste. So, look, behind the scenes, we agreed with the Australian government and the Timor government that um, we would go through the Australian authority and receive um, the EP approvals to drill three wells out in the old BHP oil field. Uh, We were granted the approvals for those three wells and the Timorese government has accepted um, uh, Nopsema's licence there, um, so that's a tick in that box. Um, uh, we've worked then very hard with both the Australian Government and the Timor-Leste Government to produce a new production-sharing contract where uh, the, the legal terms and the fiscal terms particularly are aligned with what we would have received had we stayed in Australia. As you say, uh, a month or so ago, I was up in Delhi to do the formal uh, signing of that production contract. So we've now secured um, that Uh, Because of the Dorado discovery and how exciting that's become, Uh, and while we're a $600 million business, we still need to be disciplined with our capital management. What we've decided to do with Buffalo is to seek expressions of interest from partners to come and join us. We currently have 100% of the project. So we think we have some project equity we can share with other partners who can bring expertise and capital to let us accelerate this project um, in my mind, if we can run this project uh, to appraise it and construct it and produce it in parallel with the work we're doing uh, for Dorado and the exploration around the Dorado resource, uh, I, while we're giving some exp- um, some permanent equity away, I think overall the time value proposition will work for us, and hopefully let us be able to recycle some capital, ideally from Buffalo back into Dorado and um, yeah, keep our funding in a, um, uh, a well-managed perspective that doesn't, uh, doesn't draw too hard on existing shareholders will complement the sort of debt that we're looking to bring into Dorado and um, ultimately achieve the, the main goal for us, which is the highest share price we can possibly achieve
1: yeah well 30 31 million barrels of of uh, contingent resources there uh, in a field that flowed very strongly under uh, previous operations if that's attic oil is can be shown to be there then it, uh, even a fairly significant but minority stake for would be quite a valuable asset for uh, for Carnarvon. so uh, adrian Thank you very much for spending your time with Stockhead's uh, Wildcatter Podcast today, and we will look forward uh, over the next couple of months to getting you back once you've uh, done the deal on uh, Buffalo and you've had time to look at that 3D seismic and you have some sort of a exploration program outlined for 2020. So thanks once again. Great, right, Peter. Look forward to talking to you next time.